Hello, and welcome back to Weekly Political Pep Talks, where we discuss major political headlines and issues within the United States. Glad to be back. I'm Vishal. And I'm Leo. So while we get drunk, so while we smoke weed, we're just having fun. Today, we'll start by revealing last week's quote of the week. Then we'll once again move on to our headlines, then get into our main topic for the episode, which will be marijuana. Then we'll close this episode like always, with the quote of the week that relates in some shape or form to this episode's main topic. All right, well, it looks like it's time to reveal last episode's quote of the week. Vishal, would you like to do the honors of repeating the quote? I would love to, Leo. Last week's quote was, We should not be scrimping on investments in public safety. The lack of infrastructure spending is costing us lives in America. Leo, would you like to reveal who said it? I sure will. Drum roll, please. The person who said that quote is... New Jersey Senator and former presidential candidate, Cory Booker. Shout out to Pranay Sen and Tejas Kudba for answering correctly. Go follow them on Instagram at the underscore Pranay underscore Sen and at Tejas underscore Kudva 22. Great job, guys, and thank you so much for contributing to the podcast. Now, without further ado, let's get into some headlines. All right, so the first headline that I would like to bring into the conversation is from CNN, and the headline reads, Stephen Breyer says he hasn't decided his retirement plans and is happy as the Supreme Court's top liberal. So first, some background. Stephen Breyer is a Supreme Court justice and has been for 27 years. He was nominated by Bill Clinton in May of 1994 and was appointed to the court later that year. Ever since the appointment of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court in 2020, the alignment of political ideologies on the court is approximately six conservative judges to three liberal or progressive judges. As stated by the article, liberal advocates, law professors, and some Democratic members of Congress are calling for Stephen Breyer to step down and allow President Biden, a Democrat, to replace Breyer with a younger progressive judge who will likely live to serve decades. Now, Leo, if I may interrupt, could you quickly confirm how old Stephen Breyer is? I sure can. Stephen Breyer is currently 82 years old and is turning 83 later this year. So what progressives fear is that in 2024, a Republican might become president, and then Breyer might step down from old age or pass away, leaving a Republican president to appoint a conservative judge, which would extend the conservative majority on the court to seven to two. This is similar to what happened in 2020, where President Trump appointed Amy Coney Barrett a conservative judge to the court after Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing. Breyer, however, has stated that he isn't looking to retire anytime soon. This means that for now, the only liberal judges on the court, aside from Breyer, are Elena Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor. This is significant because the future of the Supreme Court is at stake. Whether or not Breyer steps down to allow Biden to appoint a new justice will affect whether or not the court's conservative majority stays strong in the future. Now, Leo, before you move on, could you quickly explain to me, along with the listeners, the significance of the Supreme Court and what exactly it does for our country? I sure can. So the Supreme Court makes up one of the three branches of our government, which are executive branch, legislative branch, and the judicial branch. The Supreme Court is at the top of the judicial branch, and what they do is they interpret the Constitution based on cases that are presented to them. So to my understanding, the Supreme Court is a very important thing. So additionally, if Breyer continues to say that he will not step down, then progressive Democrats may continue to push for expanding the Supreme Court from nine justices to 15 justices. So one question there. If it does end up being pushed to 15 justices, does that mean President Biden would get to appoint six new justice members? 
that depends because there are some different plans for how to expand the court if that is done. Now, some believe that Biden should appoint all the justices, but more likely it will be that each new president will get to appoint one justice until there are up to 15 justices. All right, that makes sense. So now, Vishal, why don't we share our opinions on this? How about you go first? Well, from what you've explained, I'm a strong believer in the idea that a Supreme Court judge should continue his or her term until they're too ill to continue to serve or until they pass away. The idea of a political party asking a Supreme Court judge to step down from his position seems unethical and flat out wrong. Now we also have to understand where the Democrats are coming from, right? So do they want Judge Breyer to step down due to his health or because they care about him? Or do they want to step down to solidify and hold their liberal count in the Supreme Court? Personally, I see it as a move to solidify a young liberal member into the court so Democrats can have a long-term effect in the court, but others may see it differently. So I think Breyer should keep his position and let things play out. If he is unable to serve his position due to an illness, then another president, whether it be Biden or another individual, should nominate a new judge. And I think my opinion reflects the constitution and what exactly it says. A judge should only step down until he or she is too ill or unfortunately passes away. So what about you, Leah? What do you think about this situation? I think you brought up some really good points, Vishal. So now, while I obviously recognize that Breyer has the right to make his own decisions, as he is a judge who is not associated with political parties, I do think that Breyer should indeed step down. I think this because in order to counter actions taken by Republicans to gain a conservative supermajority on the court at all costs, such as appointing Amy Coney Barrett during the 2020 election, we must secure not only a semi-equal court in terms of ideology, liberal judges, and conservative judges, we also need to ensure that there are judges on the court who will interpret and support civil rights cases more broadly and use a less strict interpretation of the Constitution. Finally, as you mentioned, Bashal, we have to take into account that as a man in his 80s, it doesn't even see that Breyer's health is declining. And I would hate to see what happened to Ruth Bader Ginsburg happen to Breyer, where he passes away while he's still serving on bench. And so in this way, my opinion on Stephen Breyer stepping down is that we should have a semi-equal number of ideologies in terms of judges, but also take into account the health status of the judges. That's fair. So Leo, that's a good point, but... Has a judge ever stepped down due to a illness? That is a great question. And actually, just recently during President Trump's term, Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy resigned because of his old age and allowed President Trump to nominate Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. And this happened in 2018. So that makes sense. So at least there is some recent history of this. Yes, and there is a precedent for Supreme Court justices stepping down when they reach an old age or when they believe that their health may interfere with their ability to serve on the court. All right, well, I think it's time to move on to your headline, right? Yeah, let's get into that. The next headline I'm going to introduce is from the BBC, and it is titled Why the U.S. is Launching a $300 Monthly Child Benefit. This is essentially a program that was passed through Congress as a part of Biden's stimulus bill, which is an attempt to combat the extreme poverty within America. But before we go any further, let me explain the circumstances regarding how it was passed. And for those who don't know, Biden introduced this program as a part of his stimulus bill in March, and it was later refined and confirmed on the 17th of May, where Biden himself said the distribution of these monthly checks would begin on the 15th of July, which is the same week we are making this episode. For the past couple years, anti-poverty advocates have pushed for a plan like this, and they hope the passing of this plan will set up the groundwork of a more long-term bill that has more magnitude. Now, Vishal, you mentioned the issue of poverty in the United States. Do you know how many people are living in poverty? Approximately 44 million. So this plan is meant to combat that poverty. Yeah, exactly. 
And essentially, this action adds fuel to the fire of the controversial debate on whether these government subsidies should be a permanent part of the American safety net. So essentially, should Americans rely on these federal payments or should this be more of a temporary thing? And I'll get onto this later in my headline. Now let's move on. I'll briefly run through this monthly payment and then Leo and I will follow with our opinions. With all but the wealthiest families eligible to receive up to $300 for each child, the U.S. joins a group of well-regarded countries that provide a source of guaranteed income for families with children. Now, if I may interrupt, how long are these payments going to last? Well, right now, the payments are supposed to last till the end of this year, the end of 2021, meaning that this plan is obviously not permanent. And according to the New York Times, experts estimate that the payments will cut child poverty by nearly half. As Leo had previously asked, there are about 44 million people living below the poverty line within the United States. And this plan hopes to cut that by at least half, which would be about 22 million. Right. However, one major challenge that the government faces is how exactly they plan to get these payments out to the hard to reach families, a problem that could undermine the entire idea of this plan. Basically, the families that are in need of these payments are going to be the hardest to reach. And when you think about it, it makes sense because they can't afford or they simply don't have the technology or banks that are currently used to send over these monthly payments. And this is one of the two main arguments for the opposition's case to this plan. It certainly is a major one. Like, we should make sure there are no delivery glitches, meaning that the money is being delivered to the right people and not being left in the shadows. Additionally, it is important for the government to make sure that these payments are being used for important things. We don't want people to take these payments to Vegas or blowing it off on unnecessary things. Right. Although the people who oppose the plan believe it will increase the national debt and only reward indolence, as the plan is giving over $250 to nine out of every children in the United States and rewarding any person that has a child. Now let's talk about our opinions on Biden's plan. Why don't you go first? All right, I'll go first. I think the idea of Biden's plan is right. With the pandemic decimating a bunch of families through job loss and more, I believe the plan is a must-have and is a good support for the families living in poverty that have kids. However, I feel the plan is too broad and isn't specific enough. Going back to that statistic, nearly 9 out of every 10 children in the United States will qualify for the plan. That's a lot of people. I mean, I'm a part of that statistic. And fortunately, my family is not in need of this payment. So here's what I propose as an alternative. Biden should redraw this plan in a way that individuals with children that live beneath the poverty line should only receive this compensation. Thus, the individuals who are truly in need of this payment will receive it, and less money will be distributed, which in turn will greatly shorten that projected national debt the original plan had caused. As a result, the payments could greatly be increased to these individuals who live below the poverty line. Say these individuals receive $400 instead of the original $300, because if you decrease the amount of individuals that are getting this bill, maybe you can increase the amount of monthly payments that these people are receiving. And I believe this plan gets the best of both sides. The individuals in need will get their financial support and also indolence is not rewarded. And that argument about the national debt is not greatly increased. So Leo, what about you? What are you thinking? Well, Vishal, I agree with you on the point of ensuring that families who are in extreme need of these payments get it and that taking into account socioeconomic class is indeed important. However, I don't think that this means that we have to lower the amount of money going to all families. I think that what can be done is to keep the $300 to all families with children, but provide an extra $100 to $200 per child for poorer families who need this support. 
You also mentioned the issue of the national debt increasing as a result of this. But what I think is that it is indeed okay for the national debt to be increased if for a good reason, as I do believe that this is a good reason, providing payments to families with children. And in order to compensate the debt for these payments, what we can do is raise taxes on the highest income bracket. And in this way, we're compensating for the national debt and still allowing for material benefits for the families who need this. Also, by investing in kids early on in their life, they will make money in the economy, say, 20 to 30 years in the future. And so in this way, it's sort of a long-term investment that is sure to pay off. By ensuring that families with children are able to have the support that they need, then these children are more likely to be able to thrive, go on in life to do great things, to have jobs, and make money for the economy, and make back the money on this payment. And overall, I think that this is a huge step forward for the Biden administration and one of the greatest material changes that they have enacted in their term. So overall, I do think that this is a good and beneficial program that should be carried through and possibly even extended beyond the end of the year. All right, folks. Well, there you have it. Our opinions on Biden's recent $300 tax credit towards children. All right, let's get into the main topic for today's episode, marijuana. So before we get into it, we have to acknowledge that marijuana may be a sensitive topic for some of our listeners today, but me and Leo will try our best to discuss this in a respectful manner. So let's start with some definitions as we always do. Leo, would you like to go ahead? Sure. So for today, we'll define marijuana as a psychoactive or mind-altering drug derived from the plant cannabis, especially one that is smoked or consumed. Some other names you may know marijuana as are weed, pot, grass, dope, or even some others. So marijuana is derived from the plant cannabis, of which there are three main types, cannabis sativa, cannabis indica, and cannabis ruderalis. So there are three components in marijuana, is that what I'm getting? Well, these are three different species of the plant, and all of them can be turned into the drug marijuana. All right, that makes sense. Yeah. Also, marijuana has two distinct chemicals present in it, and these chemicals are known as CBD and THC. THC is the chemical that provides marijuana users with a high feeling. Or in other words, it's that chemical that makes people feel good when they're using it recreationally. Right. CBD, on the other hand, is the chemical that primarily relieves the physical pain. In other words, CBD is the chemical that has all the health benefits with none of the psychoactive effects. This is the chemical that is mostly in the prescriptions that doctor prescribe to people. Exactly. And so marijuana, as you just mentioned, has many effects on the body in terms of CBD and THC. And now some of these effects are beneficial and some of these are harmful, but it usually depends on how often or how long you use it for. So some positive effects include one, helping treat depression and benefiting mental health in general of the user. Secondly, uh, increasing lung capacity for moderate users of the drug. And finally, helping quicken the process of healing bones. So let's move on to some of the negative effects. And these negative effects include impaired short-term memory, making you more susceptible to infections or viruses. And in the long term, if you use the drug excessively, it can have the same effect as smoking cigarettes and that you may be exposed to more cancer-causing chemicals. So as the listeners can see, there are obviously some positive and negative effects, which makes the drug so controversial. Right. And most of this depends on two things. One, how much CBD versus THC is in the marijuana you're using. And secondly, how often or how long you use the marijuana for. So now let's look at some background. At the federal level, marijuana is considered a Schedule One drug, which puts it at the same level as heroin and even worse than cocaine, which is considered a Schedule Two drug. Medically, however, this is simply not the case. Although marijuana is a widely used drug, 
It has many more helpful side effects when compared to hard drugs like cocaine and heroin, which have many numerous harmful effects. So before we go any further, Leo will explain to you how exactly marijuana got the Schedule 1 title, because if we see that there are many positive effects, why is it so highly regarded as a bad drug? Right, and this is actually quite the interesting story. So in the 1970s, President Richard Nixon signed into law the Controlled Substances Act, which established the schedule ranking system that we have today. And marijuana was supposedly placed in the most restrictive schedule, Schedule 1, as a placeholder while President Nixon commissioned a report to give a final recommendation for marijuana schedule ranking. This was never completed, however, as President Nixon resigned, and marijuana has stayed a Schedule 1 drug ever since. So, Leo, could you quickly provide us some background on the schedule ranking system? Yeah, so schedule ranking system basically ranks drugs based on how deadly they are or how harmful their effects are. Schedule 1, obviously, would be the most restrictive schedule. Schedule 2 would be not as bad, but still has some very harmful side effects. And all the way at the bottom, you have Schedule 5. So what I get from you is Schedule 5 is probably not as harmful as a Schedule 1 drug. Right. Schedule 1 is the most restrictive for the most harmful drugs. Which will show you that's not the case for marijuana. So you want to continue? Sure. So in recent decades, many states have begun to legalize marijuana at the state level, despite it still being illegal at the federal level. So for some clarification, as long as there is not a court case disputing the legality of marijuana at the state level, it can stay legal in states and illegal federally. However, because marijuana is illegal at the federal level, it cannot be transferred across state lines. As a matter of fact, our home state of Connecticut just legalized recreational marijuana this past Thursday, the week we're making this episode. In Connecticut, it is now legal to have and use marijuana as well as smoke it in public. Connecticut residents currently cannot grow their own marijuana, but they will be able to starting July 1st, 2023. And so now let's talk about the issue of medical marijuana, because as regarding the Connecticut legalization of recreational marijuana, there is the alternative, which is medical marijuana. So obviously recreational marijuana is used for personal use, mm -hmm. either to feel good or to relieve stress and pain, whereas medical marijuana is specifically used to treat symptoms of diseases. So medical marijuana is legal in many more states than recreational marijuana is legal. Medical marijuana has many, many benefits for people with all different kinds of diseases. Why don't you give some examples, Vishal? So one example is it reduces chronic pain and nausea and vomiting caused by chemotherapy for people with cancer. Another thing is that it reduces spasticity in muscles caused by multiple sclerosis, or the disease known as MS. I myself have a family member with MS, and they have told me that using medicinal marijuana helped them relieve severe pain that they were having. And this medicinal marijuana had only CBD and not THC, or very low concentrations of THC, which allowed them to feel pain relief, but not have a high feeling or any of these psychoactive effects. Now let's move on to the different sides of the issue of the legalization of marijuana. And I'll ex explain one side and Leo will explain the other side. Sounds so good. on the one hand, some people support the legalization of weed. Legalizing marijuana saves the government money as spending on marijuana-related lawsuits no longer is needed and makes the government money through taxes on marijuana. Legal marijuana can also be regulated, making it safer for consumers. If marijuana is legalized, there is one less thing for drug cartels to sell, which hurts the black market and lowers crime, which is obviously something that's very good. And current marijuana enforcement policy is racist, 
even though white and black people in the United States use marijuana at a similar rate, a black person is 3.7 times more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession on average. So on the other hand, there are some arguments against the legalization of marijuana. So for example, traffic accidents and deaths are indeed heightened with the legalization of marijuana, just as with alcohol after the end of prohibition in the 1920s. This also causes more marijuana-related medical emergencies, which puts an extra strain on taxpayers in terms of paying for health care and equipment needed to treat these medical emergencies. So do you want to move on to our opinions? I think that's a great idea. Why don't you start first with your opinions? All right. I believe that marijuana should only be legalized for medical purposes, but the legal age for using it recreationally should be pushed back. Now let's get into why I stand behind this. And it's mainly because of the potential side effects the drug can have to an undeveloped brain. But before I go any further with this point, let's look at the legal age where people are allowed to use the drug in states. Or in other words, when you're allowed to pop a joint. States allow citizens to use marijuana for recreational use at the age of 21. However, this is four years prior to when the average human brain develops. Moreover, clinical studies have shown that when marijuana is used before the brain develops, many adverse effects can occur, such as impaired short-term memory and decreased concentration, attention span, and problem solving, which can clearly interfere with learning. Additionally, alterations in motor control, coordination, judgment, reaction time, and even tracking ability have also been documented as a potential side effect worth using this drug. These may contribute to unintentional deaths and injuries. So if we can save people's lives by slightly altering a rule and pushing back the legal age of using marijuana, I say go with it. So I am on board with using marijuana recreationally if states do something to push back the legal age to 25. Leo, how do you feel about this? Well, I agree with you on the point of that marijuana should be legalized for both medicinal and recreational use across the United States. So let's talk about specifically medical marijuana. I think that the health benefits it gives are very important and that they should be used as many patients need them. And as we just explained, if marijuana is legalized, it will also be able to be regulated. And this will result in it being safer for users and less tragic deaths and addictions. And so in this case, if marijuana is continued to be illegal, it may be sold with high concentration levels of THC, which would make it very unsafe for users. In this way, if it is legal, then it can be regulated and ensure that it is safe for users. Additionally, it's important to recognize systemic racism in current marijuana enforcement. So the war on drugs that started early in the 1970s has accelerated this racism. And as we said before, black Americans and people of color are more likely to be arrested for marijuana use than white people, even though they consume marijuana at similar rates. So legalizing marijuana would eliminate this racist policy and allow people of color to use marijuana recreationally without being discriminated against. I also think that we should clear the records of anybody who has been previously convicted of a marijuana-related crime. Now let's talk about some other points that I want to bring up. First of all, I agree with the idea of having an age restriction on marijuana, and I want to ensure that young people do not get corrupted or their minds altered at such a young age. So, Lael, if I may interrupt here, what age do you think people should be allowed to use marijuana? So I think that there are two paths that could be taken. One, you can raise their legal age to 25 for marijuana, or you can strictly enforce the age of 21, which it is currently. Mm -hmm. And so I think either of the roads that are taken will ensure that younger people are kept safe and are not altered by this drug in ways that will affect them harmfully. Let's also talk about the issue in the relationship between alcohol and marijuana. So alcohol itself, which as we all know is legal and has been legal since the 1920s, 
Alcohol is a worse drug than marijuana, and alcohol is indeed a drug. So alcohol causes much more widespread addiction and has many more abuse cases than marijuana. So people may think that this is because marijuana is illegal, and because marijuana is illegal, then it just seems that alcohol has more adverse effects. But we can also look at this proportionally. So only 9% of all marijuana users get addicted to marijuana, whereas more alcohol drinkers become alcoholics. It's in the double digits, that percentage. And so in this way, marijuana is both a safer drug than alcohol, but it also has better and more helpful effects than alcohol. And so I think I can say with strong certainty that if the report that Richard Nixon commissioned was indeed finished back in the 1970s, marijuana would be legal federally today. That was extremely well said, Leo. All right, Vishal, it looks like now it's time to move on to our quote of the week. It sure is, Leo. First of all, I hope all our listeners enjoyed last week's quote and had fun guessing that it was New Jersey Senator Cory Booker. Now it's time to reveal this week's quote of the week. And the quote is, maybe we should legalize weed. We certainly are moving that way as far as marijuana is concerned. I respect the will of the people, unquote. That is quite the quote. If you have a guess for who said it, DM us on Instagram at Weekly Political Pep Talks. And that concludes the second episode of this season. Yep, and that is it for now. Happy listening and stay political. So while we get drunk, so while we smoke weed. For more exclusive content, visit weeklypoliticalpeptalks.com.